times the whole concept of God speaking to us directly and relationally is maybe a far-fetched concept. It seems as if it's something that's sort of a relic of the past, you know. Um, and we come together, though, uh, many of us, um, and this is exactly what we believe, that there is a God. And not only that there is a God, but that he speaks to us and that he loves us and that he created us. And what a profound purpose he has for us in that creating of us. Um, and that's what we're approaching this morning when we open God's word. It's not simply me just kind of giving you my opinion about what I think about life and how it should be lived. Um, what do I know? <laughs> there's, a lot of, there's a lot of other gurus out there that you should listen to before you listen to me, in my opinion. But what I hold open to you this morning um, is the word of God. Um, the creator, the maker. All of us, I think, have concepts of who he is or what he is, if we even believe in him at all. Um, and it's very challenging for us to reconsider why we believe what we believe and let God speak for himself. And this is what we do when we approach the Bible. And um, I believe um, we're going through First Peter right now. We're, we're discussing basically this letter. It's in the New Testament. It's a letter in the New Testament that was written by the Apostle Peter. Um, and this is the guy that, um, if you recall, if you remember any of Bible stories, um, he's the one that denied Jesus three times. Um, Peter is the one that cut off the guy's ear when, when um, they were trying to take Jesus to be crucified. So Peter was one of the 12 disciples, kind of impetuous. Um, but he's the one writing this letter, First uh, Peter. And the reason we're getting into it is because we want to discuss how faith can teach us to travel through trauma and trial. Um, we all go through tragedy in life and trial. We lose, um, and those things create pain um, um, very often. So, so 1 Peter really is a letter about suffering and how God, it sounds kind of like miserable, right? So yeah, welcome to church. Um, but um, the reason we're approaching it is because there's actually joy that can be found in it. You're not reserved to some kind of doomed, miserable existence because of the trials of your life, that there's hope. Um, and Psalm chapter 1, I was reflecting on a little bit this week um, because I love how it describes life in Christ. When we finally get to know who Jesus is and his love for us and what he's done and we see him, this is what it's described like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season and its leaf does not wither. Isn't that great? To live that kind of life, a life of strength, a life of hope, a life of fruitfulness, he's like a tree. And whatever he does, he prospers. You know, I don't think that that verse means that if we start a business, we'll make millions of dollars. Or I don't think it's the prosperity sometimes that we think about. Everything's going to go right. Everyone's always going to love me. I think what it means is that there is a peace in life that God provides us when we're in him. In spite of how things might turn out, that's the kind of prosperity I want. That's a, that's a realistic outlook on life because we know that not everything goes our way, right? Amen? It just doesn't. We can't control everything. We can't control things. So what is it? Where does this come from? He is like a tree planted by streams of water. How do I get there? And sometimes, you know, Christians, we think, we wonder this 
you might not know Christ. Well, you know, let me invite even the Christians that, that know Christ to wonder how, you, how we get there. You know, I've been traveling with Jesus for so long, and I still feel like a weak tree that never bears fruit. What's going on here? So this morning I want to introduce to you and, and continue the concept that we began last week about the dynamics of real spiritual life, how to have that kind of strength um, in Christ. Um, like I said, we've been examining um, in, in the past, last week we looked at um, that part of the way that we do this is that we fix our hope on the appearing of Jesus Christ. And we talked about being set not on God resolving our problems, but on possessing the presence of God deep inside us. You see, part of the reason, I think, that it is so difficult for us to be like this tree is because that we use God to get things that we want rather than to pursue God because he is what we want. You see the difference? See, God just becomes someone who can get us out of a jam or deal with a problem that we're in. Oh, and friends, God is compassionate, and he is there for that purpose. But he is not only there for that purpose. That's almost like the frosting on the cake in relationship with God. God does indeed take care of us, and we can come to him with anything on our hearts. But God is more than just a gift giver. God is more than just someone who fixes our problems. God is a lover. God is a friend. You see, he is the prize. He's the answer to our prayer. You see the difference? We get lost oftentimes. We're not like that tree because we so often want everything but him. We just want to use him. We just want him to get us the things that we want. But scripture says, oh, that you would know him like a husband knows a wife like an intimate friend knows another friend. To know God like this. this. You see, that's why you were born. That's why God created you. That's why you're here. And it's what Peter means when he instructs us to set our hope on the appearing of Jesus Christ. These were the verses prior to what we read this morning. He says, set your hope on the appearing of Jesus. And what he means by that is let your chief desire, your ultimate affection be the final union of your soul with Christ's in heaven. That's what that means, to set your hope on the appearing of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> to set your energies and your affections and your passions and your purpose on a more perfect heart-to-heart -heart union with Jesus Christ. Now, I know some of you, the best example that I can give of what I think that this is getting at and what this means this is the best I can do as far as an example. But I, I would assume at, at some point all of you have been in love with someone, right? At some point, maybe you're 10 and this doesn't apply, okay? <laughs> some of you at some point were in love with someone else. Do you remember what it felt like inside when you found out that they reciprocated your passion for them? And it was exchanged. It wasn't just, it was communicated, in other words. There was this mingling of souls. You didn't even have to touch them. You didn't have to say anything. It just was. Right? You see, this is what I think God desires with us. A union of soul with the creator of all things. 
I believe that the reason why love is so electric and so magical for us in time is because God gave that to us as a symbol of what he wants with us. The reason that I got a chill, right, when I was in the the ninth grade and the girl that I liked sat on the side of me and her shoulder brushed my shoulder. (laughs) Right? There was this feeling of, you know, right? Like this wanting to have this union of friendship and love and affection. You see, for why did God make us? The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5 that marriage is a sample, an example. It's a lesson of what God wants with you. Isn't that fantastic? Some of us, that might not be a very good example um, if you haven't had a good marriage. But you know that it's supposed to be good, right? Imagine the marriage that you were supposed to have, right? That's what God desires with you. So Moses asks God, you know Moses, part the Red Sea, this guy, right? He, he is talking to God face to face in Exodus chapter 33, and he says, God, I want to see you. Show me your glory. You see, this isn't just I'm learning about God and the Bible, knowledge and things. This is, this is marriage talk. This is intimacy. This is friendship. I want to see you, God. I want to know you and experience you. That's what he's saying. And Moses said to God, God, listen, don't give me anything. Don't give me food or cucumbers or honey or, or a nation. I want you. And if I, don't, if I don't get you, I don't want any of that stuff. Leave me here on this mountain. So he begins to see why he was created. Friends, that's why you were created. You weren't created ultimately to be married or to have children or work. This is why God made you. So that he could look you face to face like you would your lover, and say, I love you. Put his hand on yours. You see, that's the kind of God we have, friend. That's the kind of God that made you and what he made you for. You know that Jesus prayed this in John chapter 17. It's the longest prayer of Christ. This is actually the Lord's Prayer. Um, The Lord's Prayer is actually the disciples' prayer because he's teaching us how to pray. But when Jesus prays, he says this, I have given them the glory that you gave me that they might be one as we are one. I, now Jesus talking about himself here, and we know that Jesus from the Gospel of John and many other places, that Jesus actually is the creator. He's God in the flesh. That's what we learn about Jesus Christ. So this is God speaking. So he prays, he says, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me. So there's this intermingling of the divine in the soul of the creation, of the creature. See what I mean? Friends, that's the tree whose leaf does not wither, who bears its fruit in season. And that's the kind of spiritual life I want to offer to you that you can have. It's not for the elite. It's not for monks. It's not for pastors. It's for his people says it right there in John. I in them. Union in them. Oh, you think hitting a homer and softball is awesome? Right? You think falling in love is fantastic? You think all, you know, hitting a three at the buzzer? Friends, you get it all in Christ. Come to him and find what you've been looking for. 
It's not simply to know about God. It's to see him face to face. To experience God. To know him. Absolutely satisfied by him, body, soul, and spirit. Paul, in the New Testament, called this being filled up with Jesus. He says, I pray that you would be filled with all the fullness of Christ. Filled up with the divine. From the bottom of your feet to the top of your head. To know him. Isn't that great? So this morning, I want to talk about the blessed life. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But stand... uh, um, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I want to talk about that blessed man that Psalm talks about in Psalm chapter 1. Like I said, it's not a financially blessed life, or a relationally or physically blessed life. I'm sorry about that. There are other pastors that might might be on TV that might tell you that that's what that's about, but it's not about that. It is the divine fully occupying your affections. That's what it is. It's God fully occupying your affections so that you are assured and confident that he is yours and that you are his and that nothing can break that bond. That's what this is about. That's the divine life. That's why Stephen in the book of Acts can be getting stoned to death by enemies and his face can shine and he can see heaven opened up And it just didn't matter that he was dying. That's the divine life. And that's what the life I want to live that life. I want to be that person. I want to be that Christian. And friends, if I'm a good pastor at all, I'm going to try to lead you to that same end. To find that. Because I don't know that we'll be much of a church if we don't have that. I think we'll just kind of be a group of people that will hang out and we'll laugh. And we'll have food together sometimes. And we'll have friendships And that's okay. But I want more than that. I want the Spirit of God in you and in me. That's powerful. That changes families. That changes you. That changes Warren. That's what transforms things. And that's what I want to invite you to this morning. To live that fully divine life abiding in your soul. What are the keys to this? How do you inch towards this? How do you realize this more fully in your life? And that's what I want to talk about this morning. If you don't know Jesus, for you, the divine life begins simply by putting your trust in Jesus Christ, accepting that you're a sinner, that you worshiped other gods, that 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 means that you value other things more than you do him, right? That leads you to sin. That's what sin is. It separates you from him but that you are reconciled to God through Christ, that Jesus Christ died on a cross. He took the death. The wages of sin is death, separation from God. He took the the wages um, on the cross for you in your place so that you're saved by grace, not by works. He did it for you. He He was your sacrifice. When you turn to him in repentance and faith and trust him fully, the divine life begins in you. And the pursuit of having this kind of life starts right then and there. So friend, for you, would you just call out to Christ this moment? I believe in you. Jesus, you died for my sins in my place so that I wouldn't have to die for my own sins. 
It's as simple as that, trusting in Christ. You don't have to spin around like a top. You don't have to give me money, right? Well, maybe I should, yeah, change now. No, you don't. You don't have to give me money, right? You, you, don't, right? you don't have to go to church. You have to simply trust. You simply look, and Jesus saves you. Amen? But for, for, for some of us who know Christ already, how do we get a fuller picture of who he is? How do we walk more faithfully? How do we become like this tree? <clears throat> now, the first answer that I see is an answer that I know we have trouble with, even as Christians, and it's holiness. It's holiness. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. You see, right before that, he says, set your mind on the appearing of Christ. And then he says, you must be holy. A mind that is set on the appearing of Christ. In other words, a life that is occupied with a deep affection for God's presence in your life has to be a holy life. Blessed is the one who does not walk in the step of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of sinners. The blessed life, the life occupied with the divine life, has to put something down. It has to turn from something. The hearts that are most captivated by the love of God, those that see God face to face, these must be holy. They must be holy because he is holy. <clears throat> now I know that's kind of a religious word. What does that mean to be holy? It sounds kind of like what saints are. Is that something that I can even... Um, become. It also sounds like saying that God's presence is sort of a prize for me cleaning up my nose, right? Like if I'm good and if I stay in line, then God will say, okay, you're good enough, so I'll show up. It almost sounds like the opposite of what I just said, doesn't it? That you're saved by grace through Mary. You didn't have to say yes so loud. <laughs> I'm just kidding, right? It almost sounds like, <laughs> no, you're right, sister. It almost sounds like the 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 opposite of what I just said. We're saved by grace, but now you're saying to be in God's presence, I must be holy. What's going on here? What's happening? I'm not saying that God's presence is a prize for your good works. Because we know that we're saved as a gift of grace. That we don't earn it and we don't deserve it, but we simply trust. But when we put our trust in Christ... When God saves us, he makes us holy. Through the power of what he does for us in that transformation, all our sins are forgiven. They're separated as far as the east is from the west. We become pure, righteous, holy. Even though we're guilty because we've committed those sins, they have been separated from us because of the work of Christ. So even though we are sinners in reality, they have been legally forgiven so that we have a right to approach the throne of grace with confidence. You see what I'm saying? So that means that even in my failures, I can still approach God. But I must approach him in holiness. <clears throat> it's only in the practice of that holiness that, a, that God is most fully seen and enjoyed. Think about it like this, okay? We have a position, you, you probably all have, 
um, moms and dads, right? So your position of relationship with your mom and dad is one of a son or a daughter. Nothing can change that. If you have, a, if you have good parents, even when you fail and make mistakes, they'll still be your parents, right? Because by nature and by position, they're your mom and dad. So you'll always be... So for God, because if you're in Christ and you've put trust in Christ, that, that's how he sees us now. So even though we, we fail or make mistakes, we're always his children. But when we do those things, our fellowship is broken. See, he's still dad, but our fellowship is broken. And hopefully that makes sense. Think of sin like a blindfold. If you're blindfolded right now, you could still see, right? You just have a blindfold on. You need to take it off, right? You still have sight. It's not that we can't see, but we've put an obstacle in our way from seeing, okay? If you're a Christian and you have life and forgiveness already, this is by God's gift, but sin is a barrier. Holiness puts that barrier down. Does that make sense? Holiness in Scripture very simply means to be set apart. That's what the Hebrew word means. It's what the Greek word means. It means to be set apart. And it has two implications. It has a moral implication, and it has um, another implication of utility. Morality and utility. Let me explain to you what I mean. To be holy certainly has a moral implication. To behave like God, to look like God. There's a moral sense to it. There are things that are right and wrong that we know that we shouldn't do. God is all good and he's no evil. He's all pure. That's why when he saves us, our sins need to be forgiven and removed. Okay? So we need, so, so in the Christian life, growth in the Christian life is learning to look more and more like our good God, if that makes sense. To grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And it's a process. But holiness is more than just having a moral function. It has a a function of utility. Let me explain to you what I mean. Do you know that in the Old Testament, objects were called holy? Do you know that? Moses, take off your sandals. For the ground on which you stand is holy. Right? You learn later on when Moses is instructed to build the tabernacle, which is like this traveling house for God to speak to Israel through and for, for them to meet him in. There's all this furniture that Moses is instructed to build in this where God's presence will be. And those objects are called holy. Holy bowls and lampstands and altars. All these things are called holy. This is kind of bewildering if you only think of the word as holiness as right and wrong, as morality, right? Because What's the difference between evil, wicked dirt and nice, kind dirt, right? There isn't. It's just dirt. So what's going on here? Holy furniture, holy bowls, holy ground. There's nothing morally corrupt about this dirt versus that dirt, right? But if you look at, if you look at the word as being, um, is signifying something that is set apart, you're looking at function now. What is it used for? You see, a bowl in the temple was to be used only for the temple. You see, you couldn't take that bowl home at the end of the day and eat some Cheerios or Captain Crunch in it. Okay? You had, it had to stay in there because it was reserved 
for a specific purpose, a function, and only for that function. You see what I mean? So that bowl was supposed to stay in the temple. And what made it holy? What made it reserved for that purpose? The presence of God. God was there, and because God was there, that bowl needed to be used for him and him only. Does that make sense? Now, now let's read that verse again in 1 Peter. You shall be holy, for I who called you am holy. See, it's not just I won't sleep with my girlfriend anymore. It's my whole life belongs to him. Everything about me is reserved for the worship of my God. Everywhere I go, everything that I do, I am his. I am reserved for him. That's what holiness means. Isn't that incredible? That's a much different way of looking at that word. And, and it's a challenging thing to consider as we consider our lives. That's what the word means. That's what um, the Bible means when it uses the word consecrated. This thing is consecrated. Oftentimes, we miss out on the union that we can have with Christ and God, the divine life I'm calling it, because we have something in our hands that we refuse to put down. As Christians, this is what we do. I got something in my hands, and I'm not letting it go. You see? You know that you can't be married to two people? You can try, but you can't have a union with two people, right? That's, that, that would make the word union mean nothing, right? I can't have two marital unions. That's not a union. I can only be married to one woman. And friends, oftentimes we can't be filled up with all the fullness of Christ because we're filled up with something else already. And we need to empty it out. Oh, friends, how I know this to be true so often in my life. There are things that I want, and there's no room for anything else except the thing that I want. And this alternatively filled-up life is what ancient scholars and Christian fathers called the false self. You think you need something. You think you need to be affirmed by someone. You think you need to achieve certain goals. You think a certain way about yourself. It's the false self. It's you trying to figure out by yourself what life is all about and what matters and what's important. It's the self that thinks it needs status or power or marriage or applause, whatever it might be. It's the, that false self that defines its worth and purpose through all of those things. We've all been there, right? Holiness, friends, is the act of the divine act when we start to realize that all of that stuff isn't true. And we start to realize that we were made for God's pleasure. Right? We get it from him. We get it all in him. And that's where it's found. Holiness is that self-emptying of that false self to finally realize who you really are. Perfected, Filled, made holy as a result of being united to your maker. It finally sees God in Christ as what we need rather than what we use to get what we think we need. Right? Is it possible 
that God's full presence and pleasure is simply blocked from view because we refuse to empty something out. We refuse to put it down. The Bible says, let me give you an example. Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we believe God that he can fill us and satisfy us and help us and calm us and comfort us the same way that a bottle can? You see, we either believe it or we don't. See, what you believe will enable you to put down what you've been trusting in. You see, that's what it is. And we're missing out, friends, if you can't do it. If you can't put it down, you got to put it down. Because once the blindfold comes off, there is this wonderful union that God is waiting to have with you. Okay? Can we simply turn from these things and remember that he's rescued us for this wonderful purpose to have this kind of love relationship with us. I believe that the power to become progressively consecrated to the Lord and united to him comes through this sort of self-emptying, this holiness, this filling up of of, um, who God has made us to be. Finally, putting these things down, and I believe also that the power to do that, how do you learn to live this sort of life, I believe number two comes by meditation and prayer. You see, this all sounds really good, Kyle, but I just, my heart is captivated by so many different things, and I, I feel helpless. How do I, how do I change? How do I turn? Because I want to do this one day, and then the next day I feel like I'm just sunk, and I mess up. Well, first of all, get in line, because that's all of our experience. So keep at it. Don't give up. But there is something in, life, in, in the spiritual life, in the Christian life, that the Bible bids us to come and practice and exercise so that we have the power to actually live this way. And I believe that it comes by meditation and prayer. <clears throat> word-centered, God's word-centered meditation and word-centered prayer. Now, I know that we can use the word meditation in our culture, and lots of different things come up and what we think that means and how we might define that word, okay? I'm not referring to, to like an Eastern transcendental type sort of meditation, right? You, you, you heard the one about the Buddhist who went into the hot dog stand, right? He said, make me one with everything. <laughs> no? All right. I'll keep preaching. Yeah, I'll let it sink in. Okay. I'm not talking about that. I won't tell jokes anymore, I promise. All right. Um, I'm not talking about that sort of thing, okay? It's the pro- um, th- that, that's the process of kind of like eliminating passion, emptying out, becoming nothing, right? Like this kind of idea. Um, that's not what the Bible means by meditation. Scripture said he meditates on his word day and night. So we got to think about this. The blessed one is the one, the one who is filled up with the presence of God, whose heart has an affection and union with God's, is the one who meditates on his word day and night. Okay? So this is very important. We have to understand this. You cannot have this kind of deep knowing of God personally and relationally without this. Okay? It needs to be nurtured. So I'm referring here to the biblical instruction 
on what God teaches us about meditation. It very simply is this. It is the, the daily and intentional consideration and reflection on what God has said in his word. You think about his word daily and its implications to your life. Jesus Christ said, sanctify them. Okay, You know what the word sanctify means? It means holy. Make them holy. Make them set apart. Make them blessed, the divine life, right? Sanctify them with truth, for your word is truth, okay? The word of God is called alive and active and powerful. It's by the word that God created all things, visible and invisible. When Moses Asked to see God's glory. I want to see you, God, said Moses. You know what God told Moses? He says, well, I'll pass before you, and I will proclaim my name to you. I'll speak to you. Because the biggest obstacle that we have in a relationship with God is because we don't understand who he is and who he's made us to be. We need to know him. So he says, I will pass before you and I will proclaim my name. God is revealing himself to us relationally, uncovering himself, so to speak, to us, so that we can know just that he is, but who he is in relationship to ourselves. God's word is true, and it reveals who he really is and who we really are. So we need to hear him speak. We need to listen to him. And, and friends, this is common sense. We all do this when we... When we, when we nurture love for each other, we get to know a person. We spend time with that person. We listen to them. We hear their stories, what they like, what they don't like. This is part of the process of nurturing friendship and love in life, isn't it? So this is how we nurture friendship and love with Christ. To meditate on God's word is to listen to God speak, not to the biblical figures in the Bible, but to me, to us. What is this saying about me? You see? It's not just a textbook, but it's formation. So daily, if we so desire, like Moses, to see God, we need to present ourselves with the word of God. We need to hear him. We need to enter into what some of the ancients have called sacred reading of scripture. And that basically means that we approach the scriptures not simply as a daily task or chore and not something to rush through so the amount of Bible reading that you do isn't really the issue. It's not the objective. We approach his word to hear God speak to us, to encounter him, not for information but for formation. You see, see what I mean there? It's not simply to learn something new but to be formed by God. And can I invite you to practice this and, and ask you to consider the importance of this if you're really going to have a deep relationship with God to be formed by him and his word. Be reminded, too, that this, this is what Christ did. Almost, if, if I can take scripture at its word, it seems daily that he retreated to a quiet place, to a wilderness, or to the mountains to be alone with God so that God might speak to him. You see, friends, you need to listen. We need to listen to God. We need to hear him if we're going to know him. So the first step, there's, there's some steps I want to encourage you to in this. How do you actually pull this off? What are the, the habits? What are the disciplines of this? <clears throat> the first thing, really simple, 
is to hear the scripture text, to read it or to hear it. You can listen to it. Might I suggest, if this is new to you, the book of Psalms. <clears throat> All four of these, by the way, there are four steps. You can do this in three minutes, and I'm going to demonstrate. I'm going to prove that to you at the end, okay? Um, so you don't need to be like a monk and have eight hours a day to do this, right? Like, um, you just need to have a few minutes. But first, the first thing you do is you read the scriptures. Like I said, maybe start with the Psalms, but it, does, it can be anywhere, the Gospels, a New Testament letter, anything. Don't read a textbook. Read a love letter to you, written to you. You see, sometimes before you start this, you need to stop and remember, God is speaking to me. This is God speaking to me in my situation and in my place. Read a love letter. Remember God is speaking to you. Before you begin, like I said, close your eyes, quiet your spirit. Remember this. Ask as you start to read, what is this saying about God? What is this saying about me, about life in general, about others? What's it teaching? What's it saying? How does it correct something that I believed about God that's incorrect? And let, as you read, let that lead to meditation, number two. <clears throat> let me explain to you this process. It's very simple. Take the text from head to heart. It's when you, meditation is when you stop reading and you start reflecting. Does that make sense? You have to do this on purpose, by the way. Sometimes it naturally happens. We just start thinking about things. But you have to, most of the time, I find, intentionally do this. Might I encourage you in your meditation even to speak out loud to yourself? Like, yeah, crazy, right? Speak to yourself. David did it. Right? Why are you so down, O oh my soul? He's talking to himself. And what's he talking to himself with? He, with the word of God. He's answering his emotions and how he feels with the truth, with what God has said. Because we all believe something that is untrue and we need to correct it on purpose or it will never be corrected. That narrative, that story, however you interpret problems about life, that's going to run through your brain all day, every day, unless you stop it and answer it with truth, okay? You might say something like this. You know, all your life you believed that God doesn't care. But this says he does care, right? See what I mean? You got to let the word kind of roll around in your heart with all its implications, and you might, honestly, you might not get past a few words in reading scripture doing this. Compare what God has said to you with what you always have thought. Is it different? And how does that change things for you? Think on, consider, meditate. You might just, you might hit one word, grace. And you might be just thinking about that word all day. God is gracious? Really? I never knew that. What does that mean about me? That means that he does something for me that I don't deserve, right? That's what that word means. And you just start thinking, you see, it's meditating on, on the implications of Scripture. You might be carrying around a word or a verse with you for days meditating on it. And then God might say, okay, now keep reading because i got more to say to you. <laughs> right? So read, meditate, and third, pray. <clears throat> I find that for me in my life, meditation and prayer kind of weave back and forth a lot. 
So I'll be, I'll be thinking, and then I'll be praying, and then I'll start thinking again, and it will just kind of weave back and forth, and that's okay. <clears throat> the point here in prayer, though, is to sort of dance with God with what he said. You're taking not your problems so much to God, and that's a form of prayer, and that's fine, and you can do that. But you're taking what he said back to him. This is what I heard you say to me, God. Right? So the point, the point here is to, is to pray to God with what he's spoken to you. And that's what we see. The, the reason I'm instructing you in this way is because this is what we see David doing over and over and over again in the Psalms. Okay? We see him taking the promises of God rather than his emotions and talking to God about it. Okay? You're responding to him in his motions like you would in a dance. That's word-centered prayer. So if meditation is considering in yourself how God is revealing himself to you and what it means, word-centered prayer is taking that same process but speaking to God about it. Does that make sense? So let me just explain this to you a little bit, if I can give you a process for this. So the first thing that you might do in this kind of prayer is that you're naming it, okay? You would name it. What did you read? You're naming it. Tell God back what he's told you. You're powerful. You're good. What, is the word, what did the word actually say about him? The word says you're merciful, God. You're a merciful God, right? And then you'd confess, you'd confess something. Forgive me, God, because I never thought you were kind or merciful. I don't live like you offer me that mercy. I, I try to prove myself all the time. I try to work, right? See, the word is instructing your prayer. You see what I'm getting at here? And then thank him. Name it, confess it, thank him. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy. And then ask him. Then finally ask him. So name it, confess it, thank him, and then ask him. God, help me to experience your mercy. You see, you see that process? So now you're taking the word of God and, and it's, it's actually becoming part of how you think now and how you pray. See? Hearing God and reading should lead us to meditating on that word and then bring us to prayer about it. You see, it's a very simple process. And by the way, if you're new to Christianity, there is not some magic way to pray. You can say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm afraid. I want to know you. And, and you can be ushered into his presence because he is gracious and kind. This is, this is just a useful tool that I find that helps me because I tend to, when I pray, just get into my laundry list of how I feel about life and what I want. Right? And I need to remember that I, I need to retrain. I need to be in God's presence. I need to think how he thinks. And I need his word to do that. So hearing God in our reading can lead us to this kind of reflecting or meditating and then bringing these things to God in prayer. And finally, our goal in all this is that we should be led to union with God. And that's that place, number four, where God passes before you. Where what you know about God actually becomes a part of how you feel about him and about yourself. It becomes a, a sense of being in you. It might take some time, 
But when our hearts begin to rest, that's what this, we can describe this in. We, be, we start to rest in what God has said and that God is in us. It's when we finally start to know him. Oh, it's when we get to that point in our lives, right? Oh, I can stop. God loves me. You love me, right? It's when we get to that point of union and life. It's almost like a first kiss, right? When we finally see not only who God is and who we are, but what he offers to us, what he wants with, with a, for us, that, that false self, self is emptied out, the true self surfaces, right? And be, we become filled up with all the fullness of Christ. Amen? Let me give you a quick sample of what I mean by this with John chapter 3, verse 16. <clears throat> You know that verse, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave. God loves the world. That's got to mean he loves broken people. That's got to mean that he loves me because I'm broken. And God loves me by giving to me. God's, God's a lover and a giver. He loves you, Kyle. Kyle, you are loved. He gives to you his greatest possession. You think that he's never given you anything, but he's given you everything. You think he's withheld from you, but he's given you it all. He knows you and sees you and cares for you. Oh God, you are kind and loving and good and compassionate and you gave to me. And God, how sorry I am that I think you don't. Thank you for your gift of Christ and thank you for giving me everything. Would you help me to receive well your gift? Amen. You see, two minutes. You don't need two hours for that. You just need to want to be in God's presence. You just need to know that it's better than wine. Amen? Amen? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you, Lord, for this morning and for your word. I pray, God, that we would have this habit of going to you so that we could hear who you are and what you think about us. Oh, every day, let us travel up Sinai and receive your word, that your glory and your name would pass before us. I pray, God, that whatever's in our hands, that we would put it down, and God, that, that we would listen to you, and that we would ask you to speak to us. I pray, God, for this, this group of people this morning. Some of, some of them know you, 
And I know um, the challenge, I share that challenge with them to remember that you're there and present and that you speak. God, I pray, Lord, that we would seek you like this. God, that, that we would remember to pursue you. And God, I pray, Lord, for anyone who doesn't know you this morning that needs to know that there's a creator that made them. And even though they've been blind to him, he offers them repentance and forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, come be united to Jesus by faith. Trust in him. Friend, if that's you, simply cry out to God in the silence of your own heart. God, save me a sinner. I want to walk with you. I want to know you. And I trust that Jesus Christ brings me to that knowledge.